Um, so this morning, part of my devotions was in Second Corinthians, and um, the relevance of God's sovereignty over the micromanaging. Somebody put that in a question: Does he does he micromanage our lives? Is he involved in the little things, the hard things? Does he bring these things about? This this text, verses eight and nine of Second Corinthians one, um, is remarkable. For we do not want you to be unaware, so I don't want you to be unaware. I'm reading this now because Paul said he didn't want people to be unaware of this. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. And some of you probably come into this room feeling that way right now. Something has happened in the last week that just makes you feel absolutely overwhelmed, just like emotionally hanging on by your fingernails, maybe even not able to hang on. That's what Paul felt like in this situation, it's over as far as life is concerned. He doesn't tell us what it was. I'm glad he doesn't because it leaves room for all of our experience then. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sins of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Now I want to ask you this. Um, so that was to make us rely. Whose purpose is that? Tell me. It's God's. And it becomes Paul's. It cannot be Satan's. Right? Satan never wants you to rely upon God. Alright? So, here's a horrible thing that has happened to Paul. We don't know what it was. But it, was, it brought him to the brink of death. And he says, but it has a purpose in it. It has a purpose in it. Right there. And it's not the devil's purpose. It's God's purpose to make me despair of all human reliances. So you always know one holy good purpose in your life for everything that comes into your life that involves knocking props out from under your life so that you feel like, I don't know where to stand anymore. God is where you stand. That's the point of having all the props knocked out from under your life. It's the point of cancer. It's the point of losing your job. It's the point of divorce. It's the point of every hard and horrible thing that comes into your life. God is causing you to fall on Him. Isn't that what that says? So, yes, I want God, I, I, I want a God who is involved in the details of my life. And is there are no maverick molecules and no maverick moments in my life. He's governing it all for wise and holy purpose. This is just one of them. There are hundreds. This is one. One holy purpose that's always there. And then I got to the end of the, end of the chapter. And uh, for your sake... This last verse in the chapter, verse 24. 
Not that we lord it over your faith. Let me start verse 23. I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith. So I'm saying to myself as I look at you or onto the screen, I don't want to lord it over anybody's faith. I'm not your Lord. I'm not twisting anybody's arm. I'm not constraining anybody. I'm not lording it over anybody's faith. What am I then? We work, not over, with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. So what is my role in a seminar? I don't want to be over lording it over anyone's faith. Any kind of coercive or constraining or manipulative or abusive way. Let's be done with all that. I want to come down here beside you where we stand as needy sinners before Christ and I want to work with you for your joy. And I think that Verses 8 and 9 are in the book for your joy, because he's just said so. He's writing this letter. He's doing ministry. I do seminars for people's joy, and the joy that I have in mind is joy as you're dying. I just read to David Livingston back in the room there an email I just got this morning from a friend whose wife is dying of cancer. If he's watching right now, he knows exactly who I'm talking about. And she does too. She knows her days are numbered. We think it's probably God's time. And uh, I am really thankful that he can be joyful and she can be joyful. I've got the best news in the world for dying people. I'd rather talk to a dying person than almost anybody. I've got news that nobody else has for a dying person. There's nobody but a Christian that can help a dying person be well-grounded, happy. We have every reason to be happy as we die. And so, yeah, I want a God who is totally, deeply, powerfully uh, messing with my life in the details and utterly and totally in charge Whoops, go in there later. You've been reading about that sinkhole in Florida. and That needs to be addressed, right? Let's pray. Father in heaven, there are people in this room right now for whom Paul's words are a perfect statement of how they feel. felt that I'd received the sentence of death. And I pray that they would feel washing over them in these hours news. That's the best news in all the world for people who don't have control over their lives. And we don't. None of us do. And so I pray that the sovereignty of God in salvation and in all the details of our lives would feel to us sweet, restful, happy, safe, secure. And all of our anxieties, all our trembling, 
about the next stages of our lives would fall away. And we would find ourselves standing, resting on the most solid ground imaginable. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him. He will act. So that's what we're doing now. We commit this, this seminar to you. And we trust in you that you'll act here. There are some here that need Christ. They need to be born again. And I pray that you would do that while I'm talking. And there are others, Lord, who are born again and are wobbly in their faith and need to be made strong like a big solid oak tree growing beside the streams of truth. And there are others who are yours and they're, they're confused about things and they aren't seeing the Bible completely straight. So in all these ways, work, I pray. And wherever I need correction, wherever I need humbling, have mercy upon me too. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. We rushed in the last 10 minutes or so last night through the many, many texts pointing to the reality of irresistible grace. So we just pause now and, and take our time on the conclusion here of, on irresistible grace. What is it? When God wills, His saving grace becomes irresistible. He overcomes our resistance and unfailingly brings about the act of saving faith and through that faith infallibly supplies everything we need to, joy, to live joyfully with God forever. In other words, irresistible grace gets you saved and keeps you saved forever. That's what it does. It, and we made very clear, irresistible grace doesn't mean it can't for a season be resisted. <laughs> and we give six texts on how humans resist God's grace. We all do. Every day we are more or less resisting or receiving and depending upon grace. And God in His sovereignty suffers us to resist Him. But when He decides it's time to overcome our resistance, He can. That's what we mean. So now here's a few concluding thoughts about the implications of that. If it is by grace, this is Romans 11, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Um, we can study that in context. In fact, we will a little bit later in another context. Grace, depending on grace and depending on your works, are mutually exclusive. Can't do them both. Depending on grace and depending on your performances to get saved or to keep you saved are inimical. They're at odds. And so this has to go if you believe in grace. That's what Paul's saying in verse 5 and 6 of Romans 11. If it is by grace that there was this remnant of Jews that were preserved in that context. 
it is no longer on the basis of works. All those works that Paul listed in Philippians 3, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to righteousness under the law of blameless. What do you call them? Crap. That's a mild word for what he called them. Okay. That's what he called them. And instead, it was replaced by the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, who had been graciously made his own. Verse 2 Timothy 1.9, He saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So again, he contrasts being saved, saved not because of our works. And then he doesn't contrast it with faith, which he could. He said not works, but faith. He says not works, but grace. God's eternal grace and purpose. So what excludes our dependence on my performances is the the sovereignty of grace in all of this. So I wrote in the margin over here the solas, and some of you know what I'm talking about. Uh, in Reformed theology or Calvinism or the doctrines of grace or the Reformation heritage, theology is sometimes summed up at its core, the gospel is summed up at its core in terms of these five solas. We are justified, made right with God, declared to be accepted and just and forgiven and loved and righteous. We're declared and accepted by grace alone, through faith alone, on the basis of Christ's work alone, to the glory of God alone, all interpreted on the basis of Scripture alone. And this one right now we're talking about, namely grace alone, means not that you don't do anything. I mean, if I say to you, trust the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you must do that. That's a, a, a human act. But if you believe what we've seen for the last hour on irresistible grace or texts like this, what you believe is that human act is totally enabled and possible because of grace. So that when I perform it, I don't take credit for it and boast in it. I praise God that I believe. Paul said in Romans 6, 17, I thank God that you became obedient from the heart unto the doctrine. Well, why would he say that? I thank God that you became obedient from the heart unto the doctrine. It's because he knew without the sovereign, irresistible grace of God, we wouldn't resist. We wouldn't accept what the Bible says without his sovereign grace. So, sola gratia, by grace alone, doesn't mean there's no preaching happening, no evangelism happening, no prayer happening, no faith happening, all of which are human acts. It means that grace is behind all of that. 
Grace is through all of that. Grace is moving and empowering all of that. So, here's a, I, I, there's some verses, a handful of verses that just constantly circle my life to help me live my daily life. This is one of them. Another one is 1 Peter 4.11. But by the grace of God, Paul says, I am what I am. He had just said, I'm the least of all apostles because I persecuted the church. I'm a Johnny-come-lately in this apostle thing. And I shouldn't even be included, but God came to me, knocked me off my horse, even though I was a hater of Christians. I threw them in jail. I tried to kill them. I was against Jesus with all my might, and he broke into my life with sovereign grace and saved me. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. I worked harder than any of them. His grace toward me was not fruitless, empty, in vain. How do you know? Because I worked. So what's that mean? His grace was not in vain. I worked. His grace was not in vain. I worked. It meant all of Paul's apostolic labors he was counting as the fruit of sovereign grace. Grace is in my life. If you do anything good, anything right, and you do, just say thank you. Just say thank you at the end of the day. I try to always get on my knees with my wife at the end of the day, and our prayers are very simple usually, nothing big and fancy, just thank you, thank you, thank you. Though it was not I. I worked, but it was not I but the grace of God that was with me. One of the reasons I love the sovereignty of God and the, the to totalizing of grace is that it's this, this John Piper's heart is the proudest, most arrogant heart I know. I don't know your heart. I know mine. And I'm a proud man. I like to be praised. I like to get my way. I get ticked if I don't. I'm a proud man. Therefore, I need every conceivable weapon in the book to kill that. This is one of them. I do work hard. I love to work. People call me an alcoholic. I mean, they don't call me that. <laughs> <laughs> they call me a legalist because I'm a teetotaler. But... I'm, I'm, a, I'm a workaholic, they say. Well, may, maybe, but maybe. I, I repent I, where I see evidences of that. Like, if I can't work, I, I have delirium tremens or kind of withdrawal symptoms. Um, maybe, maybe not. We'll let God decide that. But I do work, and so working hard leads to pride, right? And how, how, how might you overcome that? Right there. I worked harder than any of them, but it was not I, 
but the grace of God that was with me. So get on, down on your knees at the end of the day, a hard day, a long day, you've put out, sermon's ready, and you say, thank you, thank you. I would have had a heart attack. I would have, I would have hated you in the middle of the day if it weren't for you. I would have turned away. I would have thrown the Bible out the window when I ran into a problem. A hundred things might have ruined this life, and you helped me keep going. And I want to just want to thank you. You get the credit. I don't get the credit. I get the joy of your grace. You get the credit. And then lastly, he predestined us for adoption to the praise of the glory of his grace. Praise of the glory of his grace. Everything in this course is aiming at that verse 6 of Ephesians 1. You are on the planet. I'm doing this course. We live for the praise of the glory, not of just power or wisdom, but of grace. It's as though God's power and God's wisdom are in the service of the capstone of his glory, which is grace. Which is a wonderful thing. God wants us to praise the glory of his grace. And therefore, he makes it irresistible in our lives and he triumphs over our rebellion and he brings us to himself so that at the end of the day, when you have put your faith in Christ and you have followed him for 60 years and are ready to meet him, all you can do is thank him. Before we turn now, I'm going to turn to some questions and see what's here. Although, let's see, I had one other thing. So I want to make sure that we all know that from where you're sitting or if you're watching this on the stream, you can text in questions. And the number, I'll give it to you again. Do you want to grab a pencil real quick, wherever you are? The number for texting questions is 612-548-1216. 612-548-1216. Or tweet at D, hashtag DG Seminar. Or turn it in on paper. And, and then they show up here on my other iPad screen that Marshall is overseeing and we'll just pause periodically and see what you're what you're asking I've never thought about um, an economy of tulip what text do you use to elevate God's irresistible grace to the top uh, I, I didn't mean to elevate it to the top I meant to put it at the front and the reason I gave was simply it, it just seems to work existentially to help me get into it. In, in other words, I, I'm not ranking these in terms of their theological importance. I think they're all indispensable. Indispensable. Any of them is missing, they all go down. And I think Christianity goes down with them in their fullest and robust sense. So when I put I first, I don't mean to rank it first. I mean to say most people 
get into doctrine through experience, not theory. And I think irresistible grace is experientially the most immediate and relevant of the, of the, of the five. P is going to come close, but that is, is after you've been brought in, you persevere. That's all. I, I didn't mean to, to give it a, a rank higher than, than it should. Um, do you need to agree with all five points of Calvinism to be an elder at Bethlehem? Yes. We have an elder affirmation of faith. It's 12 pages long, 300 texts supporting it, and implicit in them. There's no place in the document where Tulip is spelled out, but implicit in the document is all these doctrines. I'm going to read from the elder affirmation of faith um, at a few points in our lesson. But yes, um, you, but here is just as important a point. You don't even have to be a, a Calvinist or an Arminian for that matter to be a member of Bethlehem Baptist Church. My view about the church is this. The front door of the church should be as wide as the universal church is wide. And the door into the eldership should be as small as you can make it. Meaning, it should be as biblically faithful as the church can understand biblical faithfulness to be. Because the elders are charged to teach the flock I want a person who got saved yesterday to be a member of the church today. He doesn't know anything, right? He just got stunned by Jesus. He heard the most minimal gospel possible on the street, on Hennepin Avenue or Nicollet Mall. He puts his faith in Jesus. He should be part of a family immediately, right? He shouldn't be an elder, <laughs> And so there's the distinction I make. So when, if that sounded narrow to you, whoa, you have to believe in the five points to be an elder at Bethlehem, these elders will be called to account by God Almighty for the souls of this flock. They better be chosen carefully, and they better be thoughtful, biblically faithful, strong, seasoned men of God. But the church is a ragtag group of people from the tiniest baby to the most mature saint. And they're just all over the map. We should be loving each other like crazy, folding in the newcomers and the babies and just helping them like crazy with all their stupid ideas and everything and, 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 and just tolerating all kinds of stuff. But don't ask to be an elder until you know your Bible really, really well, what is resistance if we don't have free will? Let's define free will. I always define it. In my understanding, whenever I use the term free will, unless I tell you otherwise, I mean ultimate self-determination. Ultimate self-determination. So I provide the decisive, or you could, you could use the word decisive self-determination. So if God and I are pushing on something, okay, I'm pushing this way, he's pushing this way, whoever's decisive is the free one. If, if God pushes and wins, I, I wasn't decisive, and therefore at, at that point, I don't have freedom, that kind of freedom. So what 
what is resistance if we don't have it? It's everything we're pushing against God with until he takes it away. You can right now spit in God's face and resist him. Why? Because he lets you. But you're not ultimately free because at any point, he can take that away from you. He can overcome that. That's, that's, all, that's all I mean. And so resistance is real. Your resistance is real. And it's owing to, if you want to call it, that measure of freedom. That, that's probably what the question is asking. If I don't have any freedom at all, how can I resist God? And I think, well, you do have that much. He tolerates that. But anytime he wants, like Paul, let's just take Paul for an example. According to Galatians chapter 1, Paul was set apart for the gospel from his mother's womb. For 20, 30, 40 years, let's, I don't know, let's just say he was converted when he was 35. For 35 years, he's a God-hater. And he hated Jesus. And he was throwing people in jail. According to Acts 9, he was breathing out murders and threats. Men and women, he was trying to get put in jail and executed. And he was happy when Stephen was stoned to death. That was God's chosen instrument. And then... The time came, right? God's watching all this. See, that's my man. What's he, what, 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 do you, what do you mean he's your man? I chose him in the womb. He said so. I said so. And I aim to save him. But it's not time yet. So here he has all this freedom. It's like on a, on a leash, you might say. God's got him like this. And then on the way to Damascus... God says to his son, now, heaven's become so bright it blinds everybody, falls off his horse. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Hard for you to kick against the pricks. Stand up. Somebody's waiting for you in Damascus. He's never the same again. Why didn't he do that five years earlier? It wasn't time. That's a pretty dramatic story statement about how free, free you can look when in fact God has you for his own and he's going to take you for his own when he please. What do you do when God's grace doesn't feel irresistible? It almost never feels irresistible. Ours is not to wait in bed until there's an irresistible catapult of us into our devotional time. Oh, that was irresistible. Just, just throw you out of bed. It, it never feels irresistible. I say almost. The way grace feels is that we're reading our Bible and a still small voice speaks and conquers us. It doesn't feel um, coercive or abusive or manipulative. It's just beautiful. I, I think the way Christ becomes irresistible is by removing our blindness so that we see him as compellingly attractive. So, 
when you're sick, you don't look at a hot fudge Sunday. You say, I don't want anything. When you're well, you look at a hot fudge Sunday and you say, I would like a big spoon, please. <laughs> What's the difference? It was the same hot fudge Sunday. The difference is you. And what God does to make hot fudge Sundays irresistible is making us well. He heals the eyes of our heart so that when we look upon the cross, it's no longer a stumbling block, no longer foolishness, but now it's, I've got to have it. Which is why I think Galatians says, for freedom Christ has set you free. If you draw the conclusion, well, Calvinists believe we're just nothing but robots and we're just slaves. Well, we are slaves because the Bible says so. We become slaves of righteousness. But what it means is we've become so perceptive that we cannot turn away from the good. That's an overstatement, but that's the way it works, right? When we are functioning as we ought as human beings, all the clouds are removed, all the sickness of disinclination is removed, and we look at everything good and beautiful in the world, and that is attractive to us. It's, it's irresistibly attractive. The better we are, the, most, the more irresistible it is. And what makes us free is we love to do it. My definition of freedom for us is Getting to do what you want to do and not being sorry for it in a thousand years. Getting to do what you want to do. That's what true freedom is. I want to do what I want to do. Well, me too. But the problem is I'm sinful and therefore I want to do suicidal things. Things that will kill me. I want sin. And conversion is the, and, and, and sanctification is the progressive healing of my heart, my eyes, my body, so that I want what's good. And that won't be fully healed until we're dead or Jesus comes back. And to me, that's one of the most glorious things. There are two glorious things about dying or about Jesus coming. One is you see him and you're with him. And two is you don't have any sinful inclinations anymore. All your inclinations are good, which means you only do what you want to do forever. And that's freedom and that's happiness. So my Calvinism leads me to being the freest of all people, partially now, fully later. And the way the, the, the grace of God becomes irresistible is by taking away my sickness and my blinders that make the attractive look unattractive. So now, by being born again and having my, my heart's eyes open, I see what is true and beautiful, and I'm drawn to it irresistibly. So, but it never feels coercive. Right? And it never feels like he's yanking, yanking us around. It doesn't do that. Just one little illustration from my call to the ministry. This is October, I think it was 14. 1979, it's about midnight, I'm staying up, been wrestling with God for weeks over whether I should continue teaching at Bethel or resign and become a pastor. I'm 34 years old, no I'm 33 years, 33 years old, I was 34 when I started in 1980, so 33 years old and I'm wrestling, 
I've got this rumbling inside of me to preach, to lead a church, to apply what God has shown me from his word to a people, not just a class of students who are 18 to 21 years old. And, and uh, all I can say is that between about midnight and 1 o'clock in the morning, it became irresistible. No explanation for how that works. I was uncertain at 11 o'clock, and I was virtually certain at 1 a.m. I should resign and look for a church. God just works. He just works. It had a lot of human processes in it. I had talked to a lot of people. I had sought a lot of counsel, and I was leaving one little slot here for my wife because I'm not going without her, right? You can't, I'm not going without her. I'm, I'm not going if she says, we can't do that. So I stopped and I said, okay, Lord, I'm going to go to bed now. And when I wake up, I'm going to say to Noel, what would you think if I resigned my job and looked for a church? And you would now be a pastor's wife. And my wife swore she'd never marry a pastor. She did. I don't know if she swore, she just said it. And uh, so I'm lying there awake at 6 in the morning. She's still sleeping. And finally when she wakes up, I say, what would you think if I resigned and became a pastor? And she said, I could see it coming. And then she said, I'd be all right. My wife is just incredible. I could tell you other stories. First year after we... One more, one more story. I know you like this. <laughs> and I like telling it. I was so depressed after my first year at Bethlehem. I came home one day. She's in the bedroom. And I'm at the dining room table like this. Just about 1.30 or so, Sunday afternoon. And I said out loud, I think I'm going to go to Africa. You know what she said from the other room? She's got a blog named this. She said, tell me when to pack. That's a good wife. Okay. Um, by removing decisive free will, doesn't that remove the essence of love? No. Ultimate self-determination is not required to be a loving person. just isn't. The whole Bible is built on the assumption that we don't have it, and the whole Bible is built on the assumption that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. You don't have to be God in order to love God. You don't have to think of yourself as being ultimate in order to love the ultimate. So no. How does God work irresistible grace in lives of people in the Muslim world who have no one to share, the share with them the gospel? He, he works irresistibly by getting the gospel to people like he did with Cornelius. Evidently, God wanted to save Cornelius in, in Acts 10. And Cornelius was a pagan outside the sphere of the gospel. He was a God-fearer. Went to the synagogue, didn't know beans about Jesus. And God set his favor on him. And, and the way 
Luke tells the story is that he appeared to him in a vision and said, there's a man up in, in Joppa, go send some people to bring him down. He's got some news by which you will be saved. So these men go knock on Peter's door. In the meantime, Peter's getting a vision about unclean animals, namely Cornelius, on the roof. Three times the net comes down, rise, eat these unclean animals. I've never touched an unclean animal, meaning I've never visited a Gentile. I don't go into Gentile homes. I'm ritually pure. And God says, don't call unclean what I've cleansed. Go down there. There's some people at the door. Not, not, not. Perfect timing. He goes with them. He walks in, says, don't know why I'm here. I don't do this sort of thing. Preaches the gospel. Cornelius is saved. That happens in the Muslim world. It's happening today. When I hear about dreams, I get a little worried. I hear, I hear the stories all the time about dreams, 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 dreams. The reason I get worried is because I don't think God has ordained to preach the gospel through dreams. I think the Bible says, how shall they believe unless they hear? How shall they hear unless there's someone preaching? And how shall they preach unless someone is sent? And that's the normal way that God does it. Does it. But God does give dreams. I heard Max Stiles give this story at the National Conference of a, of a woman in Dubai... God, a, a Muslim woman gets a dream that there's, uh, who was it? Oh, some of you were there. I'm going to get the facts wrong. You'll know I got them wrong. But he has a, she has a sister, and you're supposed to find out from this sister what the story is. So the sister uh, is also having God communicate to her, you need to go to Dubai. She goes to Dubai and walks in, don't know why I'm here. He says, I know why you're here. Tell me about Jesus. Tells us about Jesus, she's saved. That, that woman is in the church, in Max Stiles Church in Dubai today. So God is moving, but what we should pray is that irresistible grace should come on the church to send thousands of people to the Muslim world because people don't get saved without the gospel. Irresistible grace flies in tandem with the gospel. So here's the Holy Spirit working with irresistible grace, and he's like a, a, a jet flying in tandem with the gospel. If the gospel lands in Minneapolis, the Holy Spirit doesn't go on down to Dubai and save people. No gospel. He doesn't. This, this jet needs to take off, which is why we want to be a missionary-sending church missionary praying church, an evangelizing church. When this gospel plane takes off, the Holy Spirit says, there he is! It's flying like that. So where the, where the Word lands, the Holy Spirit is moving. The Holy Spirit inspired this Word. He loves this Word. He loves to exalt the Christ of this world, Word, and therefore He's flying where the Gospel flies. If you open your mouth today over at McDonald's or wherever and speak the Gospel, the Holy Spirit is flying in your life right there. You'll never have to fear, oh, I'm alone here. The Holy Spirit loves Christ-exalting Gospel. I'm going to have to keep moving here in a minute. But let me just see if there's one more I should take. If Satan is not omnipresent like God is, then how are they always in the same event as you mentioned? How does he attack everyone? That's a really good question. Um, he has his um, minions. Um, 
and he being a non-spatial entity, I just don't know how this works. I have no experience of or way to describe a being with no uh, up, down, or sideways. And therefore, where is he? He has no where. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. I just see, um, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, somehow they're all, they're all over the place. And if the devil is in China at work right now, can he have an influence on me here right now? I say, probably. I don't know. I just want to mess with him. He who is in me is greater than the one who's in the world, and I'm assuming there is demonic power against me all the time. If you ask me, how do you explain that? Uh, maybe two billion demons, I don't know. Um, seven billion, you know, 14 billion demons, I don't, I, don't, I don't know. I just see enough of it and feel enough of it that I would like to war against it if effectively. Let's uh, take questions. Let's go on with uh, the next letter, T. We will take a break long about uh, 1030 or 1015. What, what is depravity? What is total depravity? Why do, why do we talk about this? Why does it matter? Depravity refers not first to our sinning, but to the corrupt condition that gives rise to our sinning. Okay, is that clear? That I commit sins and say things and do things and think things I shouldn't is not the first meaning of depravity. Those are coming from somewhere, and that's my depravity. Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. So there's a tree, and there's fruit. There's a heart, and there's a mouth. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. So Jesus is pushing through behavior down into the heart for these Pharisees. You make the outside of the cup white and clean. Inside, you are full of dead men's bones. So the classic picture of the Pharisee is hypocrisy. They're just so, their religion is so squeaky clean. Look at all this superficial external conformity to law. And Jesus sees right through it down here. So Christians ought to be supremely concerned with the invisible aspects of our nature. And I'm arguing in this section, when you get there, it's really bad. Depravity refers not first to our sinning, but to our corrupt condition. Matthew 12, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth 
speaks. Okay, so that's what I mean by depravity. Haven't called it total yet. That's what we go to now. Just depravity is the, the corruption, the sickness, the brokenness, the bentness of my deep inner self. I still think we can, we can grasp this deeply enough because if you, if you really feel this, not just say it with your brain and mouth, but feel this, it will, it will make you a better person. Now, it, it assumes some really good news to go with it, but I'm not, I'm not there yet. I just want you to feel really bad. And I don't think most Americans feel nearly bad enough about how bad we are. We should always say we, lest we, you know, start pointing our finger at people. We are sinners. And, and it's, it's not that we do bad things, it's that we are bad. Okay. Depravity now is total in at least five senses. One, depravity affects totally every human. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. 1 Kings 8.46, there is no man who does not sin. Psalm 143, do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no man living is righteous. 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now that was spoken to Christians. I me I've met Christians who don't think they sin. Have you met any like that? There are, there are groups, there are sects and groups who have been taught from 1 John 3, 9, he who is born of God does not go on sinning. That's in the same book with 1 John 1.8. And the reason 1 John 1.8 is here is so that you won't believe that when you get to verse 9 of chapter 3. 1 John, 1 John 3.9 does not mean perfectionism. But I've met them. met one in Germany when I was, I was there. She said, I don't sin. I just kind of, my jaw just, I'd never met anybody who said that. My, my jaw just fell and said, you don't sin? I think I can make you sin. <laughs> and, and then she said, well, I make mistakes, and I stumble, and I realize, okay, you are redefining sin to make your theology work here because, because of what she thinks she's seeing. And we had to go round and round to try to, to, try to set that straight. But John evidently had to overcome that. This is kind of an over-realized eschatology. I mean, there is just so much spectacular good news in the New Testament about how God is already at work in His people and how we're already forgiven, already saved, already justified, already secure, already uh, in heaven. We, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. And a person can take this already and say, already sinless. Just a little step too far. And so there are verses in the Bible like this to say, don't take that step. Even as a born-again, Holy Spirit, indwelt Christian, you sin. 
If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So, total depravity means first that the depravity is true of all human beings in all times and places except for Jesus. He was tempted yet without sin. Second meaning of total. Our rebellion or hardness against God is total. That is, apart from the grace of God, the irresistible grace of God, there is no delight in the holiness of God and there is no glad submission to the authority of God. So apart from grace, my heart would not look at the holiness of God and say, I love that. And it would not hear the authority of God and say, I totally and gladly submit. No human being can or would ever say that apart from grace, and that's what it means to be totally hard against God. That is totally unable to change your condition. So Romans 3, 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. It's like a dominating master. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, I've never gotten on a crusade like some have against seeker-sensitive worship services. I think, in general, thinking that way is a mistake. Worship services ought to be mainly for the people of God, and then unbelievers should be welcome to come and watch the people of God worship and get saved there. But if you try to build your whole worship service around people who are not Christian, you will wind up not being a church someday. And seeker-sensitive churches have discovered that and kind of pull back from that. But the reason I haven't gotten on that crusade the way some have is because I don't think this text right here should be used against those people the way some do. When it says, no one seeks, no one seeks for God. So what do you seeker-sensitive people do in building your whole service around them? They don't even exist. Well, they do exist. This means no one seeks for God unless the Holy Spirit is drawing them to seek God. And I fully assume that some of you are here right now on a quest for truth. You're just not sure what you believe. You're not even sure you're a Christian. And you're here seeking. And I'm, I'm not going to, you you're not seeking. You're tricking yourself. I, I'm not saying that. Because I believe what this means is unless, this is, there's like a, a tacit exception here. No one seeks for God in and of themselves. No one does good in and of themselves. But as soon as the Holy Spirit starts to work on you and draw you, he get, he'll get you a church. He'll get you on the radio to some sermon. He'll get you on the internet to find like a Jewish man in Rotterdam. Uh, no, or was he? What's the capital of uh, Holland? Amsterdam, right? 
So at, in Amsterdam, he, he, he wrote me an email. He said, I got saved yesterday. I'm a Jew, and I got saved yesterday. I found Desiring God, and you were preaching on education for exaltation, talking about Jews, and I almost turned it off, but I couldn't turn it off. And How, how did that happen? <laughs> a Jewish man in Amsterdam stumbles across a sermon where I happen to be alluding to Jewish people, and he gets saved. His name was Michael, and he wrote me an email. That's, that's God enabling him to, to seek. He doesn't know what he's seeking for. So just don't, don't overstate this. This means, I think, apart from the work of the Spirit, we're all running away from God, not toward God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light. Men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who, who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Meaning, until God works, wrought means work, works in you to make you love the light, you hate the light. We, by nature, are light haters. And the reason we are light haters is because the things we are doing, we love to do, and the light exposes them as dark, and we don't want to be exposed, so we hate the light. You hate what gets in the way. I just read in my devotions this morning, besides 2 Corinthians 1, Luke 16, and it said, the Pharisees were lovers of money. The Pharisees, these religious people, they love money. And then he says, and Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves. So I just stopped right there in my devotion. I thought, okay, what's the relationship between loving money and being a self-justifier? And I concluded that what, what these people really love is being seen to be correct and right and authoritative and, and uh, superior and in charge. And money just happens to be one of the ways you can secure yourself in those kinds of positions. Money is just, a, it's just paper or metal. It's what you do with it. it it's power. It, you, can, you can get yourself a job or you can eat at a certain restaurant or you can go to a certain theater or you can hobnob with certain people or you can drive a certain kind of cool car or you can dress a certain kind of power way or money just serves this love affair that they have with justifying themselves. I can just, I defend myself against any criticism that comes at me because I, I love being above, I love being right, I love being strong, I love being seen and praised and applauded in the marketplaces. And they love this. And they're going to keep on hating the light. Jesus was light. They just hated him. They wanted him dead. Why they want him dead? Because they love the dark. That's the way we are. Oh, there's so much of that left in me. 
called indwelling sin. Anybody here love to be corrected? Just, oh, please, show me where I'm wrong. It just feels so good to be criticized by your wife and, 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 and other, other elders to be pointed out how mistaken you were and, and how that was a bad attitude you just had. It just feels so good. Nobody. Nobody. I mean, you've got to be way near heaven in your sanctification for that to make your day. Some of you are. I praise God for you. I really do. I know some people way more godly than I am who take criticism way better than I do. So I see myself here. It's no hard, not hard for me to believe this is true of human beings because I am one. Romans 1.18, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's what we do. See, here comes the truth. And... I'm going I'm to, in my corruption, in my ungodliness, I'm going to squish it. Ungodliness and unrighteousness. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So they are without excuse for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish minds were darkened. So God comes to the world through nature and the things that have been made, witnessing to his power and his deity, and instead of saying, i got to find you, whoever you are, you're amazing, you're glorious, and you're merciful because I'm still breathing, and I don't love you as I ought, I don't even know you, I need you, I want you. Instead of that, just push it down and become atheists or New Agers or something to get that sovereign creator God out of their experience who would surely have enough authority to tell them what to do and they don't want to be told what to do and so in their ungodliness, our ungodliness, we, we suppress the truth. Third, it is total, in his total rebellion, everything man does is sin. In rebellion is sin. This is pretty radical. I, I would say this, I remember in classes and students and, and they, just, they just shook their heads and said, that's just the craziest thing I ever heard. That everything an unbeliever does is sin. You don't believe that, Piper. You just can't believe that. Whatever is not from faith Romans 14.23 is sin. They don't have any faith. Hebrews 11, without faith it is impossible to please God. They don't have faith. Therefore nothing they do pleases God. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing, the good is not. Nothing in me that is in my flesh. The reason he made that qualification, I know that nothing good dwells in me, and then he qualifies. Why did he put that little qualifier in there? I think the reason is because the Holy Spirit dwells in him. And he, he wanted to make sure that he didn't indict the Holy Spirit by this statement. Nothing good dwells in me. And the Holy Spirit would say, excuse me, 
so what, what Paul means is that is in my flesh. That is what I am apart from grace. What I am in my nature. There's no good that dwells in me. Stay on this for a minute. Now, here's, let me give you a picture of how this looks, I think. So you're saying, Piper, that anybody who is not a believer in Jesus can't please God and only sins. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Moms give their lives for their kids. Pagan moms will die for their children. And, and rich pagans build hospitals instead of bombs, lots of them. And what are you talking about? And I'm saying those things don't please God. They're sin. They're certainly better than killing your kid. And it's better than building a brothel to build a hospital. Picture. I had four sons. I have four sons. They used to be at home. And now they're not. They're married, got their own problems. (laughs) (laughs) And I want to help them with their problems. But let's just pick one of them. Who would let me pick him? Let's pick Karsten. He's... He's 40 now. He won't mind. And let's say that one day I say to Karsten, um, he says to me, can I use the car tonight to go to the basketball game Friday night? I said, yeah, sure, that's fine. We've always been a one-car family, so he's check in, see if you need the car. And uh, I said, yeah, that's fine, no problem. Oh, before you go tonight, would you wash it for us? It's nice for, nice for Sunday and Nice for you tonight. And he, and he says, I don't want to wash the car. And I say, Carson, look, got anything going on this afternoon? No. Well, just wash the car, okay? And then you can have it tonight. want to wash the car. Now, my son Carson would never talk like this. So it's just, he's a good one to use. I don't want to wash the car. I said, well, Carson, look, I don't want to. If you don't want to wash the car, then you're not going to use the car. Let's just, let's just settle it. That's the way it's going to be. He storms out of the room. So about an hour later, I see him out there washing the car. How do I feel about that? Is, that, is he obeying me? He's doing the right thing. Totally wrong. He's not loving me. He's not submitting to me. He's angry as can be, and that's, that's what building hospitals looks like for godless people. They're not doing this for God. They don't love God. They're just doing what their conscience tells them to do. They have their reasons for doing it. This is one of the things that happens when you become a radically God-saturated person. Nothing can be spoken of apart from God. And once you bring God in relation to everything, the question becomes, are the people trusting Him, loving Him, obeying Him, 
delighting in Him, treasuring Him. And wherever the answer is no, sin is happening because God is the main reality. Hospitals are not the main reality. Babies are not the main reality. God is the main reality in the universe. And at this moment, in this moment of hospital building or baby saving, God is being despised, neglected, belittled, ignored. And that's an outrage 10,000 times more than cancer. But that will not make sense to anybody for whom God is not the center of the universe and the most important reality there is. So in our total rebellion, we are totally displeasing to God. We displease Him in all we do without grace. Fourth thing total means man's moral inability to submit to God and do good is total. This is probably the most decisive one, most crucial one when it comes to our salvation. Man's moral inability to submit to God, believe God, trust God, delight in God, love God, all those things. Inability to do that and to do good is total. Let's see a few texts for that. Then we'll tackle the problem. Well, doesn't that mean he's not responsible to do it since he's unable to do it? Because that's the question that immediately arises. Well, if you say man is unable to do a thing, then you can't hold him accountable to do it. So we'll address that. But first, let's just be Bible before we're logical. That's really not a good way to say it. Before we do what looks like logic. It isn't. I think God is the most logical person there is. But we get it wrong often thinking we're logical. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those... Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For, here's, here's why, setting the mind on the flesh is death and setting the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Literally, the mind of the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So that's where I'm getting this. I'm not making those words up. This is not a theological word I got from a textbook. It's a Bible reality I got from verse 7. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. So there's two kinds of people. Those who have the Holy Spirit and are thus not in the flesh, and those who are in the flesh and don't have the Holy Spirit. These kind cannot please God cannot trust Him, cannot submit to Him, cannot love Him, cannot delight in Him, because their eyes are shut to glory, and their eyes are wide open to lust, and money, and power, and praise of man, and these are unbelievably attractive, and kill them in their suicidal addictions to them, and this boring, meaningless, mythological, useless, silly, right-wing, hateful, 
Why would you want that? They can't. Can't love it because it's ugly to them. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So there's the first place I get the inability idea. Where else? John 3, 5-7, Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. You come into the world, all you are is flesh, not spirit, just flesh. And that which is of the flesh cannot please God. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. That is, I think, is spiritually alive. So you're born once, and by that first birth, you are merely human, natural, fleshy, and in rebellion against God and blind to his beauty. And when you're born of the spirit, that changes and God becomes your surpassing treasure. Do not be amazed that I said you must be born again because by your first birth, you cannot see the kingdom, you cannot enter the kingdom. You can't. Or Romans 6.17, I quoted this earlier. Thanks be to God that through you that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now those two verses are just a classic picture of how you got saved. And how you should talk about it. You should say, thanks be to God. Not thanks be to my spiritual discernment or my free will or my wisdom or my hard pursuit of God. Thanks be to God because once I was a slave. I was controlled by the slave master sin. And now, from my heart that God has sovereignly changed, I love righteousness and am therefore locked in to seeing it as beautiful and attractive and doing it. I'm a slave of righteousness, a free slave, the Lord's freedman and a slave of righteousness. And the difference between the two was God because I was a slave. I couldn't do anything about it. Or deadness. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, V. Raymond Edmond wrote an entire devotional book called But God. And he just took all the sentences in the Bible that begin with but God, like this one. He said, these are the most glorious sentences in the Bible. Something horrible, something hard, something difficult, painful, enslaving, but God. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. 
So we were dead, and now we're alive. And then there's this insertion, by grace you have been saved, close parenthesis, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. So notice two things. We were in a condition that is called deadness. And dead people can't do what they need to do. I just saw a tweet yesterday from Mark Dever. Actually, it was a retweet. And Mark Dever said, um, if something to the effect, if you do your evangelism in a cemetery, it won't help to raise your voice. And the only place we have to do evangelism is in a cemetery. Mark Dever is one of the most effective evangelists I know. If you want to say Calvinists aren't effective evangelists, they don't get people saved, you don't know what you're talking about. I can just point you, living Calvinist pastor, living Calvinist layman after layman who is red hot for evangelism, totally on mission for Jesus, eager to make disciples, stay up late, get up early to get people saved. The old soul winner types, the Spurgeon types, who was a 10-point Calvinist, for goodness sakes. And then you go to history, Whitfield, and on back through history, the reason is because God loves to raise the dead through the preaching of the gospel or through the sharing of your life. He loves to raise the dead. He gets glory when we do evangelism in cemeteries, and there's only a cemetery. Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead. Come follow me. What do you mean by that? Everybody's dead who doesn't follow me. There's the living dead and the dead dead. Follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. We'll bring some alive. So deadness means inability. And this little insertion here, right there, with the dashes, why does he stick that in there? His great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, parenthesis, by grace you have been saved, and he raised us up. You see how that's stuck in? That's faithful to the original. It's just stuck in. I think he sticks it in there because he's going to get to it in verse 8. He's going to say just two verses later, by grace you have been saved through faith. He's going to say it. Why say it again here early? And I think the reason is to clarify the meaning of irresistible grace. When you stick in the phrase, he made dead people alive. By grace you've been saved. The point is, you get what grace is? You see, let me say it again. He raised you from the dead. By grace you've been saved. That's a way of saying, you get what grace is? Grace is the kind of thing that raises the dead. It's sovereign. It's irresistible. It's grace moving into the tomb of Lazarus saying, 
come forth. And the grace in the Word creates the response. So once upon a time, you were all dead. Now, you may not remember when you were saved. I don't remember when I was saved. My mother told me that I knelt down in Fort Lauderdale, Florida when I was six years old, 1952, and prayed to receive Jesus. I have zero memory of that. So take her word for it. So I have no memory of being an unbeliever. And you might think, whoa, that's a bummer. What kind of testimony is that? You know? I mean, David, D- David Michael used to say, he just loved for, he would just stand up and say, God saved me from drugs and alcohol and sexual immorality when I was five years old. <laughs> and everybody always laughs, and I say, that's awesome. That is an awesome thing. Or like Kempton Turner said to our youth at the last retreat for youth, or the time before last, I remember it got back to me somehow, he was talking about testimonies and how some of them seem sparkling and wonderful and inimitable and others seem kind of simple. And, and he said, a resurrection from the dead is never boring. Pleading with our kids, know what has happened to you. And I'm saying that to you. This happened to you. You have to be taught that. There's lots of people who are really saved who don't know how they got saved. They don't know this happened. They've been taught wrong. They've been given all kinds of free will talk about how they did it, and therefore they're never saying, thank you, thank you, thank you for raising me from the dead when I was totally unable to do anything. Thank you. They don't even praise him for that. So you have a testimony if you would just believe it. You were dead. And you didn't make yourself alive, I promise you. God made you alive together with Christ Jesus and raised you up by grace. That's what grace is. By grace you have been saved. You walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. I'm just giving more verses to describe the totality of our inability. Notice how the, how the deepening happens. Who are in the futility of their mind, darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, because of ignorance that is in them. And you might, if you stop right there, you say, oh, our deepest problem is ignorance. And he, he didn't stop there. Be, you're ignorant because of something deeper. Hardness of heart. That's me. If, if I'm ignorant of what I need to know with all the Bible I've got, it's just hardness. It's just hardness. No one can come to me, John 6, 44, unless the Father who sent me draws him. I'm unable to come. No one can come. That's from getting unable. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The natural man, that's another way of saying the person who is in the flesh, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the flesh is a natural man, does not, does not, so you got the does, 
does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot, here's the cannot, so the does not and the cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So here's what we want to do next and I think, I think we'll take the break now before I do this because this is crucial. Here's where we're going in 15 minutes or 10, whichever you do. Um, so you've just given a lot of verses, Piper, that we are unable to please God, submit to God, trust God, love God, obey God, follow God, treasure God. We can't, you've said. For the life of me, I don't see how God can hold us responsible for doing it then. 